is Dialogue with Drake and Debu. My name is Emma Drake. And I am Sweta Debu. This is the podcast where we talk about all things policy, politics, and pop culture. Our topic for today, folks, is looking at diabetes in PEI. So why is this an important topic in PEI? Well, to understand this, we need to first look at other jurisdictions. In Saskatchewan, the Saskatchewan party, which recently won a majority, had on their platform the expansion of the insulin pump program covering the cost of pumps and supplies for residents under 25 with type 1 diabetes to include everyone in Saskatchewan suffering from type 1 diabetes. In PEI itself, we recently moved from covering insulin pumps for those 18 and under to those 25 and under. Our guest for today recently recognized his 20th anniversary of being diagnosed with diabetes, as well as the 100th anniversary of the finding of insulin, of course, the life-saving drug for those with diabetes, and that was founded by two Canadians, Banting and Best. Our guest recently gained national attention for his CBC News piece titled, Diabetes is an Epidemic, and We Need a National Plan to Get It Under Control. So today, we will be talking about diabetes, the science behind it, current provincial policy, and provincial and national advocacy efforts. Our special guest is a lifetime advocate for those with diabetes, a member of the Prime Minister's Youth Council, a curler, fashionista, and a great friend, Brooks Roche. Brooks, thank you so much for being here with us this evening. First question right off the bat, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you so much both for, for having me. We're, for context, we're in the Sweda's workplace, uh, just enjoying the scenery. Uh, there's some Japanese artwork hanging, so I'm feeling pretty peaceful and just ready to <laughs> dive into this topic. That's awesome. Um, before we get into, you know, the policy discussions, would you mind explaining for some of our listeners who might not be, you know, very aware on the topic about some differences between type one and type two diabetes? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, I think it's, it's important to, there's basically four types that I'm going to cover for context in this, uh, this conversation. Uh, the first being type one diabetes, that is what I live with, uh, mm-hmm. actually, as of tomorrow, I'll have lived with it for 20 years. Wow. Uh, it's my yeah, big 2-0 diaversary. Uh, that, <laughs> I, I think I'll get a cake, ironically. Uh, <laughs> so type, type 1 represents about 5 to 10% of all cases of diabetes in Canada. Uh, this means basically it's an autoimmune disease uh, that means that the body is insulin dependent. The body cannot of autoimmune failures produce any insulin. There's also type 2 diabetes. Uh, both, in, both forms are uh, diagnosed and undiagnosed. It's a key distinction. Uh, and this is essentially when the body can't make or use enough insulin. So whether that's through a, a failure or a failing of the pancreas mm-hmm. or a failure of the cells to properly absorb insulin. Uh, insulin compound, well, the synthetic one discovered by Sir Frederick Banting and Dr. Mm-hmm. Charles Best in Toronto um, 100 years ago, uh, insulin basically breaks down glucose in the blood. So this is an essential function to, to live and, and, you know, turn, turn glucose into energy, essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also one that's, that's really important and, and rising in importance, and that's prediabetes. So this is essentially those who are, are predisposed because of an increased level of glucose in the blood. Uh, they have a, ver- a very strong likelihood of developing diabetes in the future. 
all of these require uh, constant care uh, and all of them require uh, different different sorts of interventions. Now it's a it's a very, very dynamic, complicated, and intensely uh, relentless disease. So mm-hmm. it's it's a 24-7 job. I consider it a sort of part-time job I never applied for. <laughs> <laughs> That's, I think, the most unique way to describe diabetes, a part-time job that you, you never signed up for. But I know one thing is for sure, you're very good at your job in the sense that you've been an extremely strong advocate, um, you know, for your entire life pretty well for folks living with diabetes. And I know as of most recently, particularly in fall 2020, you were very prominent in the media speaking about uh, diabetes and different policy ideas that, of course, we will get to later on. But right off the bat, how did you first get into advocacy on diabetes? As mentioned, you know, this has been 20 years in the making. And from very, very early on, you know, I, I was three years old when I was diagnosed with this, and it absolutely rocked my world. It was a time when I was still learning to engage with the world around me, and this was a total roadblock. Mm-hmm. I had to totally relearn how to how to live. Mm-hmm. And it was a was and is a lonely and isolating process. Wow. And through that, you know, my myself and my family uh, took took it upon ourselves to organize some some fundraisers and some events in the community that really uh, connected us with other families impacted by by the disease. So that being like a, a walk for the cure, um, that was we host that annually in Montague. Um, <laughs> we. I, I then got the chance to speak at a couple events, which I found really interesting. And it was this first taste of sharing my story and, and actually engaging in a way that felt really meaningful, that I could trace what I was doing to a real impact on changing other people's lives who, mm-hmm. you know, I knew from very early on, I felt like I had been dealt a, a rough deal with this and I wanted mm-hmm. to, you know, at least push back wherever I could. <laughs> so early on, you know, getting to speak at a, a gala that was hosted here on PEI, that was when I was, I believe, six. Wow. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So wow. the, yeah, it was hilarious just uh, getting up in front of the mic. I think they had to bring two stools so I could reach the podium. It's <laughs> awesome. Yeah, it, it was awesome. And it was just this, it, I don't know if it was like a single moment that sparked um, this desire, but it was, it, it set me on a path and that was brought to new heights with getting the chance to travel to Ottawa twice uh, for the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation's uh, Kids for a Cure Lobby Day. So I got the chance to mm-hmm. sit down with MPs and ministers and actually got to speak with uh, Leader of the Opposition, Bob Ray, Prime Minister Stephen wow. Harper. And again, like it, it was this catalyzing moment where it was, I could really feel this connection between what I was doing. And at that point, it was more so you know, sharing my story and, and sharing what the foundation and what major players in, in Canada we're calling for from a policy mm. perspective, it let me dip my toes into that pool. And, and since then, I've been able to hop in for a swim. <laughs> and the real catalyst, and I think this is, you know, I hesitate to say this was the moment, but if I had to pick one, it would be last spring. Um, well, I'll set the stage with, I had gone through two years of architecture school at Dalhousie mm. and I was hospitalized once per term. Wow. And I was in a place where I was at a bit of a crossroads. You know, I was, mm-hmm. I got one week into my master's of architecture and realized that I could either do that and commit to, you know, 
long hours, you know, putting a ton of work into to get this degree that I'd always uh, dreamed of pursuing, mm-hmm. or I could take proper care of myself. And I was at a position where because of all the complications that had arisen from unfortunately putting my health on the back burner, mm-hmm. I was dealing with physical complications where I was sick, I was burnt out, I was having even vision problems wow. as a result of you know glucose in the blood. Mm-hmm. Um, and I dropped out of school. Mm-hmm. And that was a moment when it it just sucked, you know, and it felt like mm-hmm. that unfairness, that sense again of like, why did this happen to me? Not to take a selfish perspective, but it was a moment that really kind of slapped me in the face. Like mm-hmm. other folks could pursue this dream without this barrier. And yet mm-hmm. I have to do this. But I also got the chance to, when I took the foot off the pedal, proverbially speaking, and had that chance to, to slow down and, and quiet down and think, I realized how important this sort of work is and how important it is to A, share my story, but also B, you know, to, to speak up and call for change where it needs to happen. Mm-hmm. So that has been, it's, it's crazy to think that that was something like 18 months ago mm-hmm. and all that's, that's happened since then. Um, since then, you know, having the chance to engage with the prime minister and federal ministers pretty frequently mm-hmm. and, and, you know, call for national level policy change and um, do the same work at a provincial level. I uh, am incredibly grateful for that chance and also recognize, you know, that as much as it is a terrible deal at times to live with the disease, mm-hmm. you know, there are hundreds of, hundreds of thousands of other people like me across the country that stand to lead better lives if what I do pays off. And I feel that it is. So that's mm-hmm. that's the driving force. And yeah, as you can maybe tell, I'm, I'm feeling especially reflective coming into this anniversary, but mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's quite a, quite a ride. And I'm, I'm really curious and honestly excited to stay on it. I know Emma and I have told you this before individually, but you know, we, we come from backgrounds in advocacy, but oftentimes we've always admired the work that you do so, so much because it's different. I think, you know, Um, aligning yourself with the cause and then living the realities of it every day and knowing that, you know, you're speaking up on behalf of yourself, but also on behalf of a number of people. So we are very, very grateful for the work that you do. And I think, you know, even if there's people watching you who are living with type one diabetes, I think this would give them a lot of hope to see that, you know, change is coming, you know, whatever they're going through right now doesn't have to last. So, um, but going to, you know, a PEI perspective, we estimate that there's around 800 to 1600 islanders right now living with type 1 diabetes which requires them to take a number of uh, measures from monitoring their glucose levels calculating insulin needs and a number of other factors such as exercise sleep and stress which you know as you said you constantly have to be monitoring your health um, when living with this condition so what would you say are the current options for folks living with type 1 diabetes right now on PEI so I think with type one, there's really two streams or spectrums of care that I would highlight. And the first is the actual administration of insulin. Um, so on a, on a sliding scale, I guess you would have the, the kind of foundational aspect is multiple daily injections. Mm-hmm. That is your classic taking a syringe or a pen, administering insulin at mealtimes or in the event of hyperglycemia. So excess blood, uh, blood glucose. Um, beyond that is the presence of an insulin pump, which mm-hmm. is I was actually one of the first Islanders to, to try the pump. And oh. yeah, it was when I was, uh, I was eight. So it's been, oh, been a long time. Wow. And uh, the, seeing the advances 
know, not only within that technology, but those that surround it has been amazing. The difference it made in mm -hmm. my ability to have a childhood mm -hmm. was just phenomenal. Mm -hmm. So there, there's, there's a pump beyond that. More recently, these super exciting developments uh, would be like a sensor augmented pump. I'll touch on that in a second. And then finally, the most advanced that we see right now is what's called a hybrid closed loop. Mm -hmm. And that's basically the presence of a pump, a sensor, and an algorithm that can communicate between the two. So it essentially, it doesn't, it's not a cure, but it's an incredibly advanced treatment that mm -hmm. starts to replicate the function of a pancreas. Oh, wow. In addition to these, there's kind of the other stream, which is monitoring blood glucose. That's sort of the foundational element of care. That's mm -hmm. how you, how you check in where you are if you live with diabetes. Uh, so there's the self-monitoring of blood glucose, which is done through test strips. Mm -hmm. uh, there is flash glucose monitoring, which is Basically, a device can scan a sensor, which is inserted into the interstitial fluid uh, of the body. Um, and in that, it can, at any given time, check what the blood glucose is at that moment. Uh, and the third most advanced is continuous glucose monitoring, which, as the name suggests, it is a continuous stream. Uh, for example, I use this device, and uh, I get readings every five minutes of what my blood glucose is communicated to my insulin pump, which can then auto-correct. So it's, it's an incredible, wow. yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's, you know, as much as autocorrect has been the source of problems for people typing for many years, this sort of one, I'm perfectly fine with autocorrect. <laughs> it's, um, it's really incredible because, you know, if you think about that difference of control, or if you think about like blips on a graph, that's all you're getting with self-monitoring, like using a, a finger prick and test strips, you're getting a point on a graph a couple times a day when you have to deliberately, you know, draw blood and, mm -hmm. and test it manually. Mm -hmm. This is doing that at an irreplaceable speed. Like it's just, it's the difference in having that data and being able to care, uh, you know, use that for, for decisions in, in care, caring for oneself in sharing it with uh, healthcare providers. Mm -hmm. It's, wild the the difference in quality of life and just safety that because that's what it's providing is not knowing if i check my blood glucose at 10 p.m and i wake up at seven that's a nine hour window when i have no idea i'm, I'm in the dark figuratively and literally right mm -hmm. like there it's it's about thinking back when i was super young when i was three the fear that my parents must have felt and did feel knowing that i was in the next room but i could be going through crisis events through the, mm -hmm. through the night, especially early on when it's such a new disease. So um, those are basically the two uh, families of treatments. So it would be uh, administering insulin and testing blood glucose. And what we're seeing now is they're converging in these advanced technologies. And that's when, we, when I talk about, as we will, the expansion of the pump program, these hybrid closed loop systems are the best of both worlds. Mm -hmm. So two things before we get into the question, and I'll say them quite briefly. First of all, and Sweta's going to laugh at me at this, but as someone who's not from a science background, um, as in I know many people are having the opportunity to learn from you in explaining the, first of all, what is diabetes, the difference between type 1, the difference with type 2, as well as the different uh, types of options, as you had mentioned, is extremely, I think, first of all, useful, but also appreciated because if I reflect back on, you know, even my childhood and, you know, kindergarten and elementary, oftentimes, you know, there were a handful of kids that you went to school with, you know, that did have diabetes and you're just like, oh, okay, you know, that's interesting. But as someone who, 
doesn't have that lived experience and also doesn't come from a background, you know, such as science that would really understand and appreciate that. I duly appreciate the time and energy that you've put into really explaining this in layman's terms, but also because it is your lived experience. So um, that for me is, is it's so valuable being able to understand. Jumping into the question though, um, pertaining to diabetes management supplies, as you've been mentioning earlier, um, what we've recognized is um, such as insulin pumps and, and other forms of diabetes management supplies, costs can be up to $15,000 uh, per year. So so that's a that's a fairly significant cost. Um, and what we do know right now is that uh, 57% of Canadians have reported that there are uh, challenges to paying for these different types of management supplies uh, due to the cost. Right now on PEI, and of course we will be talking about the PEI policy in depth, is that um, insulin pumps for individuals are covered up until age 25. And then after that, of course, individuals would be expected to pay for that upfront cost. As we know, and if you, as you've talked about in the media, this can be a big challenge for people, um, particularly if employment isn't certain or if there are different types of employment, for example, that doesn't come with uh, insurance that would cover that. So that's a major concern. We know in other jurisdictions, though, such as British Columbia, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Ontario, Newfoundland, Yukon, Northwest Territories, and none of it, there's full coverage. So how would you compare PEI's policy on diabetes management supplies to other Canadian provinces? I, I generally love to stick to facts and objectivity, but I will just repeat a claim that's been shared with, a lot, with me uh, from a lot of folks impacted by this disease, and that's that Prince Edward Island is the worst jurisdiction in Canada in which to be a diabetic. Wow. Full stop. Mm -hmm. Consider someone at the age of 25, 26, 27, up to whatever, 40, 50, and consider the possibility of not having private insurance. Mm -hmm. You know, put yourself in, in the shoes of someone, you, you likely know someone that is in this, you know, mm -hmm. over 25 that doesn't have access mm -hmm. to private insurance. When you put an age restriction on a treatment for a disease that is unpreventable and incurable and can be, can be developed at any age, mm -hmm. when you put a restriction on a technology that allows people to live on average eight years longer mm -hmm. when they use it than when they don't, that is ableism. Mm -hmm. Essentially, what I would want to highlight is how archaic this this policy is in comparison to what we see across the country it's and don't get me wrong expanding the program from pediatric to an age restriction of 25 is a step in the right direction mm -hmm. it's just that going in the right direction doesn't always mean the problem is solved it's mm -hmm. that they've they've built a little piece of a bridge the chasm is not crossed mm -hmm. and when people fall off that that edge the the, the impact can be disastrous. You know, when you think about having to come to that decision to stop using an insulin pump, because for whatever reason, you wouldn't be able to through, through insurance, through employment, um, to willingly know that you're, you're going to shorten your life. I, I just, it, it, it's wild to, for me to, to imagine that and, and to know people that, yeah. that are in that situation. Mm -hmm. So, 
essentially right now, you know, when you, when you think about it, when you think about the program in the abstract, it's not that we're handing insulin pumps over to all diabetics. As it stands, like a significant majority of folks do have access through insurance to this technology. The province is the payer of last resort. And as a result, they need to provide that safety net for folks who may not be able to access it otherwise. Mm-hmm. It's it's viewed, you know, as we see with the majority of the country uh, and provinces, provinces and territories in this country providing this technology, it's the baseline of care now. It's not simply providing the compound of insulin that is enough. It's about the best possible way to administer it. Mm-hmm. Um, other, other jurisdictions are already beyond pumps. They are looking at, you know, the Yukon now fully funds continuous glucose monitors. Oh. Yeah, that's announced in October. Mm-hmm. Uh, Saskatchewan, the Saskatchewan party was reelected and part of their campaign was introducing, not only fully de-restricting their pump program, but introducing funding for CGMs. Mm-hmm. So what we're seeing is a lot of political momentum on this. Uh, People are recognizing how important this is and how, as we can touch on in a little bit, the, how much return there is, you know, both economically and and socially. Mm -hmm. That I, I think you going over that and describing, you know, how the experiences of a diabetic person in PEI would differ from the rest of Canada really puts things into perspective here, because, you know, I think we've, we've kind of grown up looking at people thinking, you know, the only option there is to prick your fingers twice a day, get your glucose levels, then inject yourself with insulin. But technology has progressed so far. And you're right, the benchmarks that we have for you know measuring success and measuring well-being of the people have changed so much over the past few years. Now, you've touched on this a little bit before, but you know, you advocated for PEI to follow suit, actually, on policy best practice in Canada and provide full insulin pump coverage, regardless of age, employment, or anything. Um, last fall, you were quoted in a media interview saying, there's always a cost, whether we define the cost in dollars or in the quality of human lives is our choice. So before we get into you know the dollars and cents of this, um, and again, you've already touched on this a bit, but what are the health impacts of type 1 diabetics having access to an insulin pump? And how would this impact their life on the daily? Yeah, thank, it's it's a great question. And from a personal perspective, I can speak to the fact that this allowed me to play sports for the first time. This allowed me to <laughs> sleep for once, not to not be afraid that something terrible was going to happen to me, mm-hmm. to be a, as close to a regular kid as I was able to to get. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, th- those those advantages extend throughout a person's entire lifetime. If you if you think about if you think about what someone with with type one diabetes is able to do, there is a kind of shocking lack of of diabetics in the let's say entrepreneurial space. Because think about what employment options are out there. If you know that you, you know one of the, the key qualifiers is can I get private insurance through this employer? Mm-hmm. That deter- so it's it's a it makes people's priorities skew. And oftentimes they skew in a really difficult way. It means that, you know, folks can't participate in, you know, in their community, can't be, can't be fully engaged because as mentioned, this takes up a lot of time and energy. Mm-hmm. Um, if you can outsource some of that time and energy to a piece of technology, which we know exists, yeah. why not? Mm-hmm. I think, you know, I, I've highlighted before, it's not a cure, but it takes away a lot of really legitimate fears. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it allows it allows the disease to take a bit of a backseat 
every now and then. Mm-hmm. Look, so that's sort of the anecdotal side, but you know, clinically there is so much evidence for the benefits of this. Mm-hmm. And what it comes down to is what I would refer to as time in range. Um, so if we look at biomarkers, uh, what, what I'm going to refer to is hemoglobin A1C, which is essentially a measure of the average amount of glucose in the blood. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's kept in a in a zone of control, which is below 7% for our science geeks out there, <laughs> um, what this means, the difference uh, between an A1C that's, that's kept in that range, which is you know, what, uh, what pumps usually provide is something like a 1% decrease uh, in A1C. So what we see with that, which is enormous, what we see is 76% reduction in eye disease, cutting in half rates of kidney disease, 60% reduction in nerve disease, 42% fewer cardiovascular uh, cases of cardiovascular disease, and a 57% reduction in heart attacks, strokes, and deaths from cardiovascular disease. So on average, it's more than cutting in half the likelihood of these complications downstream. Brooks, you've mentioned a lot of the different social impacts and as well just overall quality of life. And I think when we look at policies um, such as expanding the insulin pump program on PEI beyond 25 years of age to um, access overall, um, it's really important to have that at the center of any decision making because based on you know exactly what you just said, this has direct and immediate impacts on people's well-being in lives. I know um, different times when you and I have spoke about this is um, in learning from your experiences. For example, you had had a friend who had recently lost their job and associated with that was, of course, their insurance. And what that meant for them was they no longer could afford their insulin pump. And you had said to me, and it was really something that stuck out, was that could impact their life expectancy by eight years, you know? And so that to me was just like, wow, <laughs> that's that's terrifying to think that, you know, all of a sudden just due to, you know, the nature of someone's employment and, and particularly if we look at it, you know, within the context of a COVID economy, that has direct impacts on, on people's um, both well-being from a social perspective, but as well their their overall life expectancy. Uh, transitioning a little bit, and I hate to do this, but um, of course this is always going to be a question when we look at public policy is um, what are the financial considerations when we look at uh, expanding this policy from age up to 25 coverage to that full universal coverage as we've been talking about? Yeah, you're you're right, Emma. That it's it is always a question, and it is a pertinent one to ask. Um, and I think you know it, it is tough that I I tend toward the maybe the social side a little too much. But I've recently been really trying to dive in and and see what I can find on a, a you know concrete justification for why this can be done dollars and cents uh, from a dollars and cents perspective. So right now, if we take a baseline as someone using multiple daily injections. Um, and self-monitoring of blood glucose. It costs per patient about $3,000 a year. To use a pump with, uh, with self-monitoring of blood glucose is about $5,000 a year. Mm-hmm. If we look at a pump with a continuous glucose monitor, it would be $9,000. Mm-hmm. So keep, keeping that in mind, it's uh, roughly, if you want to t- think of it as doubling the current price per patient uh, to provide a pump guaranteed, uh, and tripling to provide a pump and a continuous glucose monitor mm-hmm. being the most advanced system. 
according to Minister James Aylward, who I had the chance to meet with in November, the cost of the expansion of the program from 18 to 25 is $242,000 a year. Mm-hmm. What I can also say is that as far as I can tell from that meeting, they did not cost a full expansion of the program. Mm-hmm. They did not run any models that looked at fully expanding it, which is very unfortunate mm-hmm. to know that this is a policy move that is done by providing the answer and then asking the question. Just to clarify, expanding the program from 18 to universal, while they were also looking at expanding it from 18 to 25, that was not a policy consideration at the time. That's correct. What was alluded to in the meeting was that they had no current figures that looked at fully expanding the program and the costs therein. Uh, Now, I will try to keep my personal feelings on that at bay, but I can also say that it's deeply disappointing to see that order of operations totally skewed and to know that due diligence was not done when people's lives are at stake. Mm -hmm. What I can point to on the, uh, I've run some figures looking at data from clinical studies and all across the world, meta-analyses from Diabetes Canada figures. Introducing Pumps for All on Prince Edward Island would cost somewhere between $500,000 and $1 million. It's not a lot. To eat. I, I would have to agree with you. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a nice stretch of pavement, pavement to touch on a recent meme. Um, funding pumps and CGMs for all would be in the range of $1.7 to $2.8 million. And what I can point to in... You know, that, that is a, a sum of money. I'm not going to deny that. And it's to, to do that for a subset of the population that's, as you mentioned, Sweta, 800 to 1,600 people. Mm-hmm. It, it's quite an investment. I will, I will say that. And that's an upfront cost. But let's also mm-hmm. consider the following. Every year, direct complications as a result of type 1 diabetes cost employers $3,000. Mm-hmm. Every year on Prince Edward Island, the direct costs of type 1 diabetes-induced kidney failure is $400,000 per year. Limb amputations cost an average of $600,000 per year directly. Hospitalizations are, on average in this province, $6,500 per day. And on average, someone living with type 1 diabetes is hospitalized about once a year. So that cost directly is $7.8 million. Altogether, those direct uh, complications cost us in the range of $9 million every year. And as mentioned earlier, if insulin pumps cut in half the likelihood, if we can take that like very rough average of cutting in half the likelihood of complications, mm-hmm. that's something like $4.5 million in savings, mm-hmm. just directly. Um, you know, also looking at the, the absolute range of uh, if we fund pumps and continuous glucose monitors for everyone who needs them in this province. million being the absolute max. That's assuming full uptake, you know, going bananas on just handing these out to who needs them. That's 0.35% of the province's health budget. That would be a 0.35% increase. Uh, $807 million are spent on the health and wellness budget in this province every year. Um, And, you know, I I just would point out a lot of that is actually a disease budget, not a health budget. Mm -hmm. This is a chance to cut back on that. Mm -hmm. 
And, you know, those are really interesting numbers that you've put forward, especially looking at, you know, how the absolute most increase this would make to the health budget is 0.35%. I think that's in the grand scheme of things, that's nothing. But it's also very much in line with what we know about health, is, which is that, you know, prevention always costs less than curing problems down the line and talking about the impacts that that would have. That's very much in line with what we know already. But of course, we know that diabetes as well doesn't affect everyone in the same way. Um, in the general population, for instance, it has a prevalence of around 5%. If we're looking at First Nations individuals living on reserve, this climbs all the way to 17.2%. Indigenous peoples off reserve, we're looking at 12.7%. Inuit people, it's around 4.7%. And Métis people, around 9.9%, according to Diabetes Canada. So how would you view, you know, diabetes and intersectionality and how people would live this experience. Diabetes is a racist, classist disease. Mm -hmm. It walks essentially every line that can be discriminated upon uh, unevenly. So when you look at Prince Edward Island, which is, you know, we have, we have many populations that are made vulnerable. In this province right now, there are 50,000 people estimated who are directly impacted by diabetes. That's including the four types alluded to, type one, type two, both diagnosed and undiagnosed, and pre-diabetes. That's one in three islanders. Wow. This is this is an epidemic by all definitions. And it, it also represents an impending economic tsunami. It's the direct costs over the 2020s of diabetes are going to increase almost 30% in this province. So, you know, I think that's the the idea of intersectionality. If we if we can draw together that sort of expansive Venn diagram of who stands to be most impacted by this disease, it is exactly as you said. It is uh, folks who are at the lower end of the socioeconomic ladder who are earning less, who are people black, indigenous, and people of color, uh, who are older. You know, it, this this negatively impacts senior citizens. Yeah. And at the the intersections of those those points on the diagram, that's where it, it hurts the most. And these are communities and, and groups that are already put placed at a disadvantage mm -hmm. by the social determinants of health. And this moving forward for me, I mean, I recognize this is a very type one heavy uh, discussion that we've been having. And I think, you know, over the over the holidays, I had the chance to sit back and reflect a little bit and sort of set it couple directions on where I want to take this work I've had the chance to do over the coming year and years and looking at a little bit more of an expansive argument because my approach in in tackling you know the pump program and and looking at CGMs has been can I pick a lane and really drive it to the end can I try to get something done mm -hmm. um, as opposed to getting a, a lot of things moved a little bit can I move this all the way and can can I find a way and, and tap into the community and those around me to, to, to try to get that done. Moving forward, recognizing, recognizing, I mean, one in three people in this province impacted by the disease and the way that that is plugged into all these other issues that must be addressed, how, how diabetes is a, often a symptom. It's a heavily stigmatized disease in the sense that people assume and people insinuate that it is somehow a diabetic's fault that they live with this disease, that they made choices that put them in this position. It is not a choice to live in poverty, to live without housing, to, mm -hmm. to have a low income, to, to be a racialized individual. Mm -hmm. And it's 
we got to re- recognize this. And I think moving forward for myself and for, for others looking at this is how, how that web, uh, how trying to solve any one issue is going to impact others in this, in looking at these, you know, broad and, and really intertwined social issues. We can make progress on one by making progress on any. And I think this is one way to move the needle forward for a better quality of life for people in this province and in this country and beyond. You bring up some really strong points. Um, I know And again, we've talked about this so many different times. And and I think one of the things that's really interesting, you know, for me and something that I learned from you actually was the intersectionality with diabetes and the different uh, experiences folks will have based on what their income may be, um, you know, what community they may belong in. And, And like you said, those who are hit the hardest or where those intersectionalities lie. Um, And so, like you said, when we can address this one particular policy option, that's going to have positive impacts uh, across the board in each of the different areas that it does uh, intersect and impact. That being said, you know, again, as I said before, you've been a super strong advocate, uh, particularly since that kind of pivotal moment, as you have mentioned, um, when you had uh, discontinued your previous studies and kind of jumped into your next next adventure with school and advocacy and things like this. Um, so two-parter, what has been the, you know, reaction and as well the comments and the response, first from community and then second from government? I'm never not amazed by the response from the community, you know, seeing whether that's digitally or in person or or being stopped on the sidewalk and being told, Hey, I heard this, or I read this and being told that what I did or said made someone realize something or look at the problem differently. That's just, it's a wonderful feeling of, of knowing that, you know, I think sometimes I, I put pressure on myself for big impacts, big splashy moments. And those are unfortunately sometimes few and far between, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean the work is not valuable. And, you know, so many people are, are impacted by this disease and so many people because of the nature of it, don't have the time or energy to spare to speak up on it or, or push for change or contact their elected officials, whatever it is. And being able to, and you know, having the, the privilege that I do have to really dedicate my time and energy to it, uh, there's a there's a very clear sense that it's needed and wanted. Mm-hmm. And that's never lost on me. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes it does get frustrating thinking, why is not more why isn't more being done? Why isn't this moving faster? But then knowing that, you know, getting messages from folks who live and live with and are impacted by the disease saying, uh, my son or daughter loves what you've been saying, or they admire what you're doing, or um, I never, you know, I never st- shared my story before, but I, I will now. Those kind of things really hit differently, mm-hmm. you know, as far as, uh, and, and I, I also just want to say how grateful I am for the support that I've received, both within the community and from folks that are maybe learning about this for the first time or in a new light. Mm-hmm. Um I'm incredibly grateful for that. And it keeps me going. Um, as far as the government response, I've had, uh, well, yesterday, uh, January 6th, I had the chance to meet with a member of the opposition and uh, a member of their policy uh, team to discuss it, to discuss some budget recommendations 
uh, and and how this would plug into the spring sitting of the legislature. There's honestly, I think it's a majority of MLAs in this province have spoken out directly or I've been in touch with them and they've responded in favor uh, of expanding the pump program and and you know what I'm planning to bring forward on a broader look at, at addressing diabetes in the province. So as much as it can be a, a long, slow process, such is government. You're both familiar with that. It can be a, an onerous thing sometimes, but um, for, for our <laughs> listeners, Emma just mimed a tear rolling down her cheek. So agreed. Uh, yeah, it's, I think it, it's always easy to wish that things could, uh, you could get that instant gratification and things could, could flip instantly. And, and that's, you know, unfortunately going to be pretty rare, but I think we've also seen this year, you know, the, the capacity to recognize the urgency of a situation like this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the fact that when the pressure is on government is a mechanism to make change for the better. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, as, as citizens and people who are on the receiving end of policy to not just accept what's handed out to not mm-hmm. just say, thank you for expanding the program a little bit. I guess we'll get it next time to say, no, this needs to be done right. Why do it? You know, why come back to the drawing board in four years and make the same decision you should make today? Mm -hmm. That's the take I I have. And, you know, I'm sure that I have a bit of a here he comes again presence in in the legislature. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm I'm totally fine to have have that reputation. And I think that's going to help move the needle. And honestly, you know, it's, I wouldn't be, doing this and would have the capacity to do it without all the, the incredible folks behind the scenes and, and supporters like yourselves and like other folks in the type one community on PEI across the country. And yeah, it's, it's a, I think something I've learned this year and this has really pushed that into the deeper parts of my brain is um, I'm a big fan of Dave Meslin based out of Toronto <laughs> and he <laughs> has three lessons that he spoke about on leadership. Mm-hmm. They, that leadership is imperfect. A lot of the efforts <laughs> I make here are really ugly. They're, they're just kind of, <laughs> they're Hail Marys and it's just trying to move in the right direction. Um, it's, it's voluntary. Mm-hmm. It's no one is going to tap you on the shoulder and say, Hey, you should lead this. Hey, you're the chosen one. You know, it, it's, it's about recognizing the gap and doing what you can to fill it. Um, and I think most importantly, the lesson this year is it's collaborative mm-hmm. on that last point. Like it's, this is a result of tapping into people. Mm-hmm. I think that's, I've tried to go it alone before. I think, you know, going it alone is is part of what put me in a tough spot with my health a year and a half ago. Mm-hmm. And being able to lean on people and be a bit more vulnerable and saying, can you help me? Can you support me? Will you give me a hand on this? Mm-hmm. Has brought these results. I credit it. I credit, you know, I, it's not easy, mm-hmm. but knowing it comes back to knowing that the support is there. There's, there's a, a feeling that goes into it. Can't, I can't put my finger on it. It's a sense. Mm-hmm. And that's been a huge source of energy for me. You have raised a lot of incredible points and I'm still reflecting on quite a few of them. Of, you know, you're, what makes leadership leadership the fact that you know it's imperfect it's voluntary collaborative i think this th- very important point to make but also you know we all know that leading to policy change is sometimes a very slow uphill battle but that 
policy change oftentimes doesn't come just from the top down. You also got to work from the down up. And part of the work that you're doing, even if, you know, we're not seeing groundbreaking policy changes yet, just having that momentum in the community, having more and more people champion this cause, I think that's making an absolutely real impact in the work that you're doing. But, you know, this is our first episode of 2021. So we're going to make it a very forward, uh, future facing one. So what comes next for Brooks Roche? What will you be activate, uh, advocating for next? And how can we keep up with the work that you're doing? I think 2021 is about, if I could make an analogy, it's about clicking the corner of what I've been doing and dragging it out. Just trying to expand it that little bit by bit by bit mm -hmm. and recognize, you know, as mentioned, I felt a little bit compelled to really dive in on specific type 1 diabetes programs and policy. And now that I think it's the wheels are turning, or at least the rust is coming off the wheels, <laughs> I can zoom out a little bit and think, you know, how does this fit into a, a broader ecosystem of public policy? And how does this fit into not only PEI, but Canada? You know, I'm and I'm in conversations on some, some bigger issues like implementing a national diabetes strategy, uh, Diabetes 360. I've brought this up with the Prime Minister and Ministers of Health and Finance, both Ministers of Finance, actually. <laughs> um, and uh, I think it, it's about, it doesn't always show up very clearly uh, looking at it right now. You know, I can't guarantee you what I'm going to be working on in July or November, but I can tell you that they build on one another. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of how my my interests follow this this winding road and and i'd like to think that they always um are following this road of how can they impact most the most individuals the most uh powerfully so no i know that's a, probably my, my most political answer of the, <laughs> the day but it's i don't have have a like a checklist but i think the list writes itself Thank you so much, Brooks, for taking the time this evening to to speak with us. And of course, listeners will be hearing this on Monday morning at 8 a.m. as per usual. Um, but it, it's really a, a genuine opportunity to be able to learn from someone such as yourself that has had this, you know, 20 year long, challenging and, you know, successful and um, just kind of ebbs and flows, you know, experience with this disease and navigating it in a, I think, really powerful way. Like you said, like leadership, you know, sometimes is, is going to be ugly and sometimes you step up to the plate and sometimes it feels a little bit weird and imposter syndrome. And, you know, sometimes you don't want to have to bother people, but um, you've done that all with grace. And I think uh, for both Sweta and I, it's a real opportunity to be able to showcase all that work. So thank you so much. Is there anything else that you'd like to add? I would just so sincerely like to echo the thank you for having me on. Um, it's it's really wonderful. I'm an avid listener, and I I just hope that <laughs> I hope that fellow avid listeners are are gonna enjoy something and and leave you know take their AirPods out, having learned something a little bit today. If I can just add, you know some last words to close this segment is that we've really enjoyed the conversations around policy. We've really enjoyed, you know, the very insightful comments you've made, but most of all, I've really enjoyed your metaphors throughout yeah. this uh, interview. It's like every question you were hitting us with something new and it was really funny, but also really pertinent. So I really appreciated that. 
Now to move on to the serious portion of the podcast. Um, of course, as listeners know, uh, we have transitioned our former MRM panel, uh, movies, restaurant, and music panel to a beer panel based on uh, popular demand from you lovely folks, the listeners. Now, Brooks, I'm going to have to put you on the spot, and, and I'll only do this, I know, because we have chatted about this before, um, but you do have Belgian heritage, and of course, Belgium, I'm not biased at all, <laughs> is the beer capital of the world and produces the best beer, and that's just not up for debate at this time, unless what is going to challenge me, which at such point we'll have a conversation, but we always allow the guests to go first. And so, what is a beer that you would like to share with listeners today? It doesn't have to be your favorite. It doesn't even have to be a good one. It could just be one that you know there's a story associated with, or you really just want to talk about the experience. So, do you have any recommendations? I'm going to take this chance to tell a very quick but very entertaining story about a Christmas gift that I gave to my brother and my dad. Um, and it was, I got eight like super highly, highly acclaimed award-winning beers shipped here from Treehouse Brewing in Charlton, Massachusetts, which in a time of, you know, I don't have to explain to listeners what's going on right now. Um, these are unprecedented times. And, <laughs> It was quite a challenge to get that here. And I had to like tap some connections I have in Boston and it, it just felt very like organized crime-esque. But finally they did arrive here and uh, it was a really awesome Christmas morning gift just seeing these like these beautiful, beautiful can art, this like ama amazing array of what became seven beer because I had one to celebrate after, <laughs> after they arrived because I was stressed. Um, <laughs> they, and it's just a, it's such a, a cool thing to know that that came from somewhere that I couldn't set foot right now. Mm -hmm. I think that's the thought. And, and I, I've been trying to, you know, be more intentional in giving gifts that are like about an experience. Mm -hmm. And I'm, we're going to set aside a time for my, my brother and my dad and I to get together and do a little sampling party, mm -hmm. um, which is just something, again, lessons of recent times. I just so appreciate that opportunity to see people and converse with them mm -hmm. without having to ask them to please mute themselves. <laughs> so I'm just, uh, yeah, that's my, my beer story. Uh, as for locals, um, you know, I'm, I'm always in good standing with the, the Montague heritage. So yes. I have to represent my roots and <laughs> plug copper bottom right now. I'm just a big fan of their stuff as always. So use code Brooks 10 at checkout. I'm kidding. There's no, there's no discount. <laughs> I was extremely interested in said discount. Um, that's really sad. <laughs> but um, who knows? Maybe something will have itself worked out. But that's awesome. I'm going to hand things over for Sweta. What? No, she's pointing at me. Listeners, I've, I've, I've been told I have to share my recommendation. So I'm going to go with not a local beer today. This is the first time I've went non-local. Well, Schooner, of course, is a Nova Scotian beer, but for the purposes of the Maritimes, that's, you know, still local. So we'll hop across the pond, of course, um, to my second home, Belgium. I'll share one of their beers. Um, it's not my favorite, 
there's too many to choose from, I think, really to have a favorite. Um, but what I will say is I really like the Orval, which is um, a 7% um, kind of bitter, um, really spooky type beer. Um, it's really got a kind of a tart flavor without being sour. Um, anyways, it's a really interesting beer. Um, and I really like the logo in it. Someone's, it's like a fishing rod and there's a fish on it, I believe, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, as well as it's a trappist. So it is one of the most, um, it's the highest honor in terms of the beer hierarchy. Um, so there's some religious procedures associated with that in order to garner uh, said, you know, level of distinction. So anyways, it's pretty interesting if folks see it in a store somewhere or see it online. I'm not sure if you can order it, but definitely worthwhile trying if you're interested in beers that are just kind of a kind of bitter, spooky taste. That's my recommendation. I have never heard beer being described as bitter and spooky before. So I'm definitely curious if we ever go on a road trip to Belgium or something, that'll be on my list to try. Um, I don't have any international beer stories, but I do have a local beer recommendation. And that's the lo uh, the seasonal uh, strawberry APA from Gahan. I tried it for the first time on Christmas Eve and it was really good. It's like a raspberry sour, but with strawberries without the sour. So essentially a raspberry APA. That's not making sense. It's a strawberry APA. It tastes really good. I really like it and I really enjoyed it. Emma's showing me the logo right now. It's... um. It's a fish being hooked in. That's that's quite interesting. That is all the time that we have left. Once again, thank you so much, Brooks. Uh, thank you, listeners, for tuning in. Hope you're all staying safe and healthy in 2021.